Howdy do, y'all. I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find The Ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Lips LA with Scott Lips. Hey, it's Scott, and welcome back to another episode of Lip Service. Today's show is going to be a hoot. I have the authors of Nothing But A Good Time and the one and only singer of Twisted Sister, Dee Snyder. Truth is, this episode actually means a lot to me because I grew up during this time period. And for those of you who may not know, I was actually in a band called Black Cherry. My band was one of the bigger bands on the L.A. scene. My singer, Paul Black, was the original singer in L.A. Guns. And I had played some rehearsals with Pastor Pussycat and jam with Wes Arkeen. And so this you know, this scene when everyone on Sunset Boulevard used to dress to the hilts and be passing out flyers, probably 1987 to 1991, the strip was covered with thousands of flyers and thousands of people promoting their bands. I was very much a part of this. So this rings really true to me. Really excited about this episode. It's a great book, New York Times bestseller. So excited to have the authors on the show with Dee Snyder, Twisted Sister, to tell the story from the East Coast perspective. So coming up in just a moment, Dee Snyder, and the author is Tom and Rich, Nothing But A Good Time. Hey, howdy do, y'all. I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find The Ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Lips LA with Scott Lips. Our show today is brought to you by the fine folks at Thursday's Boot Company. You guys have seen me rocking these boots in every other picture I have on Instagram. I'm always repping them. Thursday's Boots is a bootstrap startup that makes the best handcrafted boots and sells them direct to consumer at some of the lowest markups in the footwear industry. Thursday's Boots' tagline is highest quality, honest prices because they use some of the best materials like full grain leather, supple glove leather lining, and gold standard Goodyear welt construction. Thursday's Boot Company sells their boots at prices starting at just $149 with free shipping and returns. They've been featured in all the best fashion press from Esquire to GQ to Cosmo and Vogue. And more, more importantly, they've gotten over 20,000 five-star reviews from real customers. Thursday's boots are perfect for people who understand quality and don't want to pay a high retail markup for great-looking pair of boots that are built to last. So check them out at Thursday's Boots on Instagram. My favorite shoes, my favorite boots. You always see me repping them. You'll love it. You're listening to Lips LA with Scott Lips. My guests today are iconic frontman and one of the most important hard rock bands of all time, Mr. D. Snyder from Twisted Sister. Hey, D. Hey, D. Good to be here, guys. Hey, D. One of the authors of uh, Nothing But a Good Time, one of the best books I've read in a long time, The Uncensored History of the 80s. Here it is. And uh, happy to have you guys all here. Happy to get into it. This book really brought me back. I mean, I live this era, Rich and Tom, so I think you know uh, my history a little bit, but it was incredible. And D, you have incredible stories. So I'd love to hear about how you guys all met. And I think you guys interviewed like 200 artists for this book, right? We did. Um, D, 
you know, primary among those. But Tom, Tom and I, just in a nutshell, have been working together on and off for like 25 years. We met at Guitar World Magazine as editors, uh, worked there for a lot of years, and always kind of talked about doing a book like this because it's the music we grew up on, it's the music we love. We were sort of, I've said this before, we were sort of hesitant to jump into it because we knew we would just go down this rabbit hole and just never, potentially never come out of it. But, um, <laughs> but here we are, you know, we, we survived it. But in about 2017 is when we first decided to really jump in and do this. Um, and from there, you know, we got to this point. And by the way, I know you admitted a lot of pages. So it was definitely some bands like Enough's Enough and other bands that did not make the cut, right? Yeah, I mean, they didn't, and it's not like they didn't make the cut. What happened was um, for some bands, we got a lot of all of them, like for for Twisted, we got D, we got JJ, we got Eddie, we got um, other people from around their scene. So you, and because it's an oral history with quotes, you really need a lot of people and interconnectedness to make the story flow. So, and with uh, Enough's Enough and a couple other bands, we actually did interviews, but like because Enough's Enough was in Chicago, um, Dangerous Toys, we also interviewed who were in Texas. There just wasn't enough connective tissue to like, to hook them into the story, um, you know, and have it move forward that way. Awesome. Well, dude, I'd love to know, you have such a history and obviously for me, the most important band to come out of New York and you know, centuries, <laughs> so long. So let's talk about your defining moment in rock and roll. And what was the first gig for you that really made you want to get into this early on? The first gig that made me want to get into it, he says, stalling to think. Uh, uh, you know, I really, it was um, sixth grade Glee Club solo. Um, and uh, I was waiting backstage to come make my entrance for my solo. It was the spring concert. And um, I got, I went out in the hallway and I lost track of time. And uh, when I finally made my entrance, they apparently had been vamping for three or four minutes, the whole choir, everybody waiting for my entrance. And when I walked out on stage, I got a standing ovation. And I wasn't sure why I got the standing ovation, but I was like, this is awesome. <laughs> and I was already like decided I, at that point I wanted to be a Beatle. I, that was I was going to be a rock star. So that was just like cemented as I, if I could be a Beatle and this is the what I'm going to get. Honestly, that was that moment where I said, this is what I got to do. I got to be on stage in front of people cheering for me, even if, it's, even if it's only for showing up late. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been nearly 45 years together with Twisted. Now, when you look back in the 80s, Dean, you read this book, obviously, was it fond memories for you? Uh, JJ says I'm a little bit tortured. I'm, I, I'm filled with self-loathing. Uh, I, you know, I, I was, a, I'm a, I'm an odd man in, in that scene, as these guys knew from talking to me, I'd never been to the rainbow. I oh. didn't, I didn't, I, that whole world was like alien to me. To me, I was on a mission to succeed and prove that I was the greatest front man in the world and, and that my band was worthy. And as you know, these guys know, and people have seen the documentary, it was 10 long years for the band before we broke through. And once I broke through, I wasn't letting up. I was taking my foot off, was not taking my foot off the gas pedal. So I was always that guy who just pushed himself to the point to the, of, 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 of just physical uh, exhaustion. And um, 
so a lot of the memories, like for example, I, my, my own memoirs I wrote, I had a sore throat for 10 years. I did. <laughs> now, when you guys wake up with a sore throat, you go, ah, oh, this sucks. What a, what a crappy day. 10 years. So I was just like this irritated asshole uh, just what, you know, and who had to keep moving forward, keep winning, keep beat, you know, and keep rocking. And I don't even understand why sometimes I was just so driven. So my, I, I, I'm, I'm proud of it all. I look back finally, uh, would I want to do it all again? Probably not. Uh, it was, it was very, uh, it was very physically abusive on my own body. I'm a weird guy. You want to talk to Molly Crew, guys? I tell you, yeah. We got laid. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> I was going to say, take me back to the, to the beginning, because really, Twisted started in 73. So a lot of people think that you guys were an overnight success. But to the contrary, you've been around for about 10 years. You started doing covers. And when you started breaking, obviously, this music wasn't in vogue. It was the knack. It was the go-go. So talk to me about the perseverance that you had to have to stick it out that long and what it meant when the music wasn't fashionable. Yeah, understand that Twisted formed in 73 at the height of the glitter, original glitter era. Bowie, Alice Cooper, T-Rex, bands like that. I was not in Twisted. I was in another bar band. Uh, I was playing my own thing, but I was immersed in that world. I joined in 76. That scene's over, and I refuse to let it go. I'm like saying, no, 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 no. I'm still, I don't know why. It was like dead as a doornail. Kiss was taking their makeup off pretty soon, a couple of years later. And I'm insisting, no, we're just carrying this flag. So there was no Motley Crue. There was no Rat. There was no Poison. There was no, none of the hair bands. None of that stuff existed. We were this weird band. And when we finally broke in like 80, 81, when I say broke, I mean, went to England and broke out of there, we were just a weird metal band. We were very in, in, inserted in the new wave of British heavy metal, touring with Motorhead and Saxon and 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 all you know, and all of these metal bands. And there, Iron Maiden, and there was Twisted Sister with a face full of makeup, going, you know. So it was just a defiant thing. It wasn't a scene at that point. Then, 81, 82, 83 the band started rolling out and the makeup thing started to become an issue. When we got discovered in 84, people thought we were jumping on the bandwagon. We built the damn bandwagon. There wasn't a bandwagon. <laughs> we were putting the wheels on this thing. I got them off the carriage in my mom's house. You know, I mean, we built the bandwagon that everybody else got on, but people did not realize that about us. Definitely. It's funny because when I was digging deep, actually, I didn't know that you guys voted on the makeup in like 83 and Mark Mendoza was like, we should take the makeup off. And I believe that he was outvoted, right? That was a very, that recently came, I didn't realize that was like, well, I talked about it in my book, but it recently came to the fore that uh, there was, it was, it was for the Stay Hungry album before we recorded the record. And Mark Mendoza, who was one of the newer members of the band, uh, he decided that we should take the makeup off after, that was 80. 384. So we've been together since 73 wearing makeup. And now he wants a vote. At, and we're just, we've already had success in England. It's our third album. We're building a following. And now he goes, I want to take the makeup off. I'm like, oh, who is this guy? And because he was a band member, there was a formal meeting and a vote was taken. And AJ, the other new guy, uh, who had just joined maybe, uh, well, months before the first album came out. He voted, the two of them voted to take the makeup off. And Eddie and, and JJ and myself said, no, let's stay the course. You know, we, we fought, I mean, literally physically fought so many nights 
to wear the makeup. I'm like, if I was going to take it off, I would have taken it off a long time ago. Definitely. And, and Tom and Rich, where did you guys grow up? Did you grow up on the East Coast? Uh, yeah, I grew up in New York City, about actually 10 blocks from uh, from where JJ lives. So when I was in school, I would see him jogging by um, in like 1986 or 87 in his tights. He's a jogger. Uh, now, well, yep. Tom, I, I had, now I'm taking over the interviewers. As you say, <laughs> I'm a radio guy. So, well, wait a minute, like metal hair you know that, that metal is not a urban music no. uh, what so you sort of were an observer of it i mean uh, you know and and or later came into it later or were you that oddball city guy who was into this very suburban sound i was a kid at a new york city prep school who used this music to define myself as like the the other person whereas in the rest of america that would be what you did to fit in right i was the kid who was like reading guitar world and and like knew i was the guy who knew that's jj french it made you yeah. it made you you were the yeah. different the odd guy okay yeah. got it and rich what about you did you grow up on, on the east coast yeah i grew up on long island um in port washington and I was just a kid, you know, I was your typical suburban kid that just loved this stuff, loved Twisted Sister because I knew they were local. Uh, D, I don't know if you still live there or if you did live there, but I had family also over in Dix Hills that I think my, my cousins claim they knew your son. It's possible. I have, four, I have four sons and we did live in Dix Hills for a while. And, mm -hmm. you know, we lived a number in Lloyd Harbor and East of Tuckett. We, we were out on the West Coast now. Yeah. Uh, but um. But yes, but uh, everybody's got a D story on Long Island, <laughs> usually Long Island, yeah. at a Dunkin' Donuts or Home Depot. Uh, yes, <laughs> how many people go, uh, hey, you do Steiner? <laughs> well, this yeah, is a school bus. Yeah, what are, you, what are you doing at Home Depot? Buying light bulbs. What are you doing here? <laughs> Same thing you're doing, yeah. Same thing you're doing. <laughs> Only Ozzy has a light bulb buyer. <laughs> Did he talk about the scene in New York, though? Because when you guys were starting out, obviously, there was, you know, there was Rat Race Choir, there was Zebra, but there wasn't a lot of bands that were doing the glam thing, to my knowledge, on the East Coast. I'm from Long Island, too. So Twisted Sister was godlike status when I was a kid. So talk to me a little bit about the scene. You started in covers. I think your first major, major gig was like opening up, opening up for uh, Blue Oyster Cult at the Nassau Coliseum. That must have been incredible for you. Yeah, well, that, but that was already like 78 when we did that. I actually had a picture I could show on the wall of that when I was wearing the flame outfit. But uh <laughs> But yeah, well, that was that was a thing that Twisted was actually going through a, 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 tur a change turnover of musicians. And JJ, who was the, the, original, the only original member of the band, well, back then it was a guy named um, Kenny Neal, the bass player. They were like saying, okay, yeah, we've been wearing this makeup and stuff since 73. It's the scene's over. And I was a suburban kid going, if the scene's so over, why am I still getting in fights every night because I've got makeup on? And I said, you know, this is an, it's over in the urban areas. You guys are always way, way ahead of a curve. You're bailing on things before it reaches. Your idea of out is when it reaches suburbia or reaches the, the rural areas. When they're wearing it, then it's no longer cool where you are. I said, so I still felt there was a place for this New York Dolls-esque look. And, uh, and we started playing out and yeah, the Zebra hadn't, hadn't arrived yet, but none of the other bands were championing or wearing that. And yet we made it a thing and, and people were responding and into it. And, and just as a little aside, 
it was only a short time later, like you know, I joined Twisted 76. So I remember 78, the Rocky Horror Picture Show, going to see it down at 8th Street Theater at midnight showing me, JJ, and Suzette, my wife, 25 people in the theater. But that started building ahead of steam. And you think about that and it connected a little bit to the hair metal and the makeup that came back. I think there's a direct correlation. It showed that that movie got revived and it bombed Definitely. and it came out. Mm -hmm. And suddenly people were like into it. And it was all about guys wearing makeup and, and, and costumes. And there's Twisted Sister. I remember we played the first Rocky Horror Show convention at the Calderon Concert Hall uh, at Twisted Sister Open. And, and I remember the cast showing up completely confused by the response they were getting. Just what's going on in the United States with our movie? It's crazy. So initially, yeah. was it the Dolls or the Rocky Horror Picture Show where you kind of got the idea for the makeup? No, definitely Dolls, Alice Cooper, David Bowie. But but um, Tim Curry definitely refined my makeup. Uh, you know, he'd probably be mortified to hear that. But uh, <laughs> but I definitely like tuned a lot of my stuff in uh, with, with uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show. So like 78, 79, you're playing clubs. I love the story in the book to you about Vito from White Line, how you kind of call him out on stage because he's just sitting there with his arms crossed like that. Talk about that story. It's a great story. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I did not suffer fools uh, easily. And, uh, and I, for some reason, I just was so hostile. Uh, I was, felt like if you were not enthusiastically responding to my band, then you hated me and you hate me. Well, rule number one, you like me, we're friends. You don't like me, we got a problem. So, um, and, and I felt it was my job to get everybody who was not into the band physically out of the club, drive them out or make their life so miserable that they would never want to come back again. And Vito from White Lion was in a, one of the bands, it was called Dreamer, I think. And they were opening for Twisted Sister, probably a big deal for them because we were like the hot, we were the hot hand there. And um, he was just trying to be cool as so many bands had made the mistake of doing. They came down to a club, his girl's there and they were, you know, and, the, and he has just one of those faces you want to smack. <laughs> and I saw him and I, and I just, just ripped into him. And I said, no, don't, I said, that's, a, that's the guitar player from the other band. Don't cheer for him. Don't watch him. Don't look at him. Ladies, do not go anywhere near him unless you've got a 10 foot pole. I said, don't know, this, this guy is untouchable. And he said, but he said it was like, I don't know if you guys interviewed him, but he said yeah. it yeah. was that, oh. uh, that moment where he like got his act together. He said it was like a come to Jesus moment for him. So uh, I was just trying to spurn him. 1980 or so, I think you guys were actually making the equivalent of like $300,000 per year each, right? Doing covers. Yeah. When I was doing the, uh, you know, I like I went back and I looked at bands and you had bar bands making like $1,000 cash a week. Okay. This is under the table. Uh, and and I, and I remember like bands like the Good Rats, um, John the Cat Gatto driving a 450 SL. This was 78. Corvettes. Um, Joe Franco bought a house in Dix Hills. Somebody mentioned Dix Hills. Uh, you know, Peppy had a house in Nessequag. Uh, people had money. They were living like rock stars. And I did the transition translation, you know, what would that be today? A thousand dollars? It's like a salary of $350,000 a year. So you're like 22 years old and you're a rock star. You got playing to pack clubs, hundreds, thousands of people. You have security to protect you and you're rolling with money. And uh, so it was, it was a very intense time. Twisted Sisters though, after the first time we took that big like weekly, one summer we did that. And then we had a meeting 
And we said, listen, we got to reinvest. This is not, these guys think that they've arrived. This is, this, this is, uh, I think uh, Mark from Rat Race called it a velvet noose. You like thought you arrived, but you hung yourself with it because it, you had no motivation to get out. So Twisted took 240 bucks, which to this day is still the amount I take out of the ATM. That was our weekly salary. I don't, I don't know why it's 240 bucks, 240 bucks, because the rest of the money went back into new demos, new costumes, new stages, new, you know, new press kits, because we had to get out. But at that point, you still didn't even have a record deal, right? You're making no. the equivalent of like $300,000 a year, $350,000 a year. The scene in New York is still starting to, to sort of bubble, but you still don't have a deal. So at that point, I know you went to London to record your first record, right? Talk about how that came about. And because the music at that point, you still had have so much perseverance because the music still wasn't, as I said, like in vogue, right? We had been rejected by every record label five times every label in the United States five times. Uh, it, it was just, you know, we were, we were at the breaking point. And we had, a, we had one of those, you know, happy accidents. A photographer named Ross Halfin, sure. uh, who Ross was like- Halfin. The, Ross Halfin, right? <laughs> Ross. He was in New York uh, filming Def Leppard or somebody like, you know, they were a young band then. And um, he was, had a night off. He met two girls who said they were going to New Jersey to a bar to see a band called Twisted Sister. And because basically he wanted to get the girls, he went with them, came in with his camera, was amazed to see this crazy band with this crazy response, took some pictures, sent them back home. We got put in, a, I don't know if it's Kerrang or Sound. And all of a sudden we were getting some like interest out of England, led to an independent record deal. And like Hendrix, like Joan Jett, like the Stray Cats before us, we broke out of the UK. We had to go to another country to get the recognition and get that opportunity to break. When we first came back to the States, I remember kids would talk, meet me and say, where's your English accent? We bought the English import. We read about you in Kerrang! magazine and you're from New York, you know, but that's what it took. By the way, still to this day, that happens because the Strokes, you know, they essentially moved to London too, just to create a buzz. They weren't getting the attention in New York that they deserved too, but but uh, it's funny. So there was a camaraderie with some of the bands, but I, I love this story. Actually, um, I, I think JJ actually had a death threat at some point when you guys were playing and it was during Shoot 'Em Down that you, you guys actually all left the stage. So tell that story. It's one of my favorite stories. Well, that essentially, yeah. yeah. So, you know, we were, we were pushing people's buttons. I said a lot of fights, a lot of a lot of fights and uh and we we got very i was about evoking reaction you either love us or hate us there was no middle ground so at some point and jj was you know up right up there with the stage banter with me at that time so uh and he got a death threat and they said at this club they're gonna they're gonna shoot him and we had a song called shoot him down and we assumed just that that would be the song so when it song started <laughs> The whole band left the stage and JJ was up there. And I remember AJ turning his cymbals so they faced downward, like a, so they would, you know, they, they would be like shields, like Captain America's shield. And uh, JJ was like running. And though JJ's like doing like, you know, serpentine now, serpentine. He's going back and forth as fast as he can, trying not to get shot. No, nobody shot him. It's amazing. <laughs> I, 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 I didn't, if I sounded sad about that, I wasn't. You didn't think to just leave the song out of the set that night? No. <laughs> That's what I thought. Yeah. No, it's a stupidity. I did a lot of stupid things, man. A lot of stupid things. And Rich and Tom, talk about the book for a moment. Obviously, there was stuff brewing on the West Coast, Quiet Riot, 
we can't talk about this book without talking about Twisted and Quiet Ride and how, you know, these were the two bands that really broke it open for so many bands yeah. to follow. So talk about how that all transpired. In, in some ways, like Quiet Riot is like the West Coast equivalent because they're another band around for a good 10 years before they break. Um, they break around the same time as, as Twisted does. Uh, and MTV is a major factor in that. And, um, and I just want to add in very much carrying that, that sort of glitter, glammy kind of look from the early 70s too. Yeah. And there's actually, there's an interesting moment in the book and I'm paraphrasing because I don't remember exactly, but it's D, you go out to dinner with Kevin Dubrow and you talk about how he was saying, this is 84, 85, when you guys have finally broken through and you're like, isn't this great? We finally made it. Like after all that struggle and you say something to him along the lines of, you know, you're like, Kevin, I wouldn't wish this on my worst enemy, what yeah. we had to go through. Yeah, well, Kevin said, um, don't you hate the fact that these bands like Motley and right. Rat were together for a couple of years, got a deal and found it all. And we had to, we, we paid our dues, we earned it. And mm -hmm. I just, and I remember saying to him, Kevin, I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. It, right. it, 10 years of slogging out just beat the joy. It wasn't joyful when we arrived. It was like, you know, finally, but it was just like too little, too late kind of thing, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think what we really try to show in the book is that, you know, for even for a kid like me who was, you know, 13 when when Twisted and 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 Quiet Riot kind of come on MTV, you don't know about the past. You don't you're not hip to what's going on in the you know in the metal underground. So it's like, oh wow, the stuff just appeared out of nowhere. And I think then later as the decade goes on, there was even like a misconception that this music was invented in some corporate rock lab, yeah. you know, because it became so big and, but really, you know, really, and we, you know, D talks about it and Rudy Sarzo even says that he's like, we were thought of as dinosaurs in 1980. Exact nope. words that we got called. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Nobody wanted to sign these bands. They wanted the knack. They wanted the go-go's. So like, it really was, a DIY as as DIY as any other scene ever was, you know, Definitely. when, when it started. I was going to say, We're Not Going to Take It was the song that obviously broke it wide open, right? MTV. So talk a little bit about how that changed your life, Dean. Obviously that and Come On, Feel the Noise. I mean, these are two videos that really helped change everything, right? Yeah. And, you know, and and just uh, a little, just backing up just a little bit, then I'll, I'll get to that. You've you got like three, I see three bands that were hugely influential uh, and, you know, and affected the scenes. Twisted Sister in the Northeast, um, Quiet Riot in Southern California, and Y&T mm. up in the Bay Area. Mm. There's so many bands. Dave Manichetti was the man to beat. And so many bands from Metallica, all these bands there, there was this band called Y&T who were huge in Northern California. And around, from 73, we all formed around 1973 and was slogging it out for years in our different areas. And then eventually, and, and every band in the world opening for us. I mean, when you go for Twisted, you've got, you, you got, you know, Kicks and Poison and Cinderella in various incarnations and Steve Stevens. And, and you know, and you're talking about Steve Vai would come to see us and all of these different artists, the North, Bon Jovi, we were the band you went overkill, Anthrax, the speed metal scene hugely influenced by Twisted Sister coming to see us. We were the band. Oh, and but let me not forget uh, Chuck D from Public Enemy he said, no Twisted Sister, no Public Enemy. <laughs> he said that he would come see Twisted and got his rebellion thing from watching us. But then down in Southern California, 
everybody is opening up, including Van Halen for Quiet Riot, you know, and, and, and up north for Y&T. So, so these bands are there. But now to get to your question about the song, you know, you get that song that somehow is just, I don't know what it is, that ramming rod that just breaks the door down and, and gets you through and gets people's attention. And yeah, it changes your life. You see, because Twisted, I always thought we'd be big, but I never thought we would have hit records, mm. you know? And suddenly, you know, not just the kids knew about us, but their mom and dads knew about us. Their grandmas and grandpas knew about us. Yeah. It was, it was just, the scene just transcended everything. And, and kudos to Quiet Riot. Really, they were the ones who just took out the wall that everybody else went through. You know, we went through following Quiet Riot. They really broke it down. So there was a camaraderie between some of the bands for you then? I don't know about camaraderie. I kind of did, hated everybody. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, I sort of kept, no, that's not really super true. Uh, we, we toured a lot with YT. We toured a lot with Rat. We toured a lot with Maiden. Uh, Metal, uh, not Metal, we did a Metallica. We toured with Metallica. Always got along with everybody. So there was, you know, there was definitely camaraderie. The bands, we were, hey, we were all just trying to make it. You know, that was the thing. We want to, want to make it. Even later on, I think you played M3 with Brett Michaels, and I love that story, how he followed you. <laughs> You're like, watch this. Yeah, and that was, his, that was a mistake. He didn't know that he was following us. <laughs> Acoustic. He grew, he grew up watching Twisted and knew better than that, but somebody put him on <laughs> afterwards. Uh, and when he, when he arrived late and said, wait, I'm going on after Twisted? No. And I, again, to me, it's like it's all fair in love and war. Like when you're in the ring, you can be friends outside of the ring. I am trying to destroy you. So I knew that Brett did an, uh, an acoustic thing. So I got an acoustic guitar and I said, uh, you know, and in the middle of the set, I said, you know, everybody's doing the acoustic thing now. So I thought it might be time for Twisted to break it down a little bit. And I put the acoustic guitar, I strum a chord and I go, I don't know if we can curse on this show or whatever. Yeah, and, and I go, fuck that and i take the guitar and i smash a million pieces and i said twisted sister will put down electric guitars when they pry them from our cold dead hands and the place loses their shit and we go rocking out a little while later brett comes on <laughs> pulls out his acoustic guitar yeah it wasn't a good moment it, was, it was not a good moment <laughs> so uh, in 87 i moved to la obviously the whole scene was really you know, burgeoning then. And I remember putting flyers, and you guys talk about it in the book, Rich and Tom. So I'd love to talk about this, right? As bands, we would put flyers up. Another band would come along, put flyers on top of our flyers. It was this flyer war that was going on. But there was such resourcefulness with the bands. There was bands like Wasp back in the day that were building their own stage props, right? The bands had to be so resourceful. Talk a little bit about what went on back in the day in like the late 80s and what all the bands were doing here. And I'm assuming some of that went on with you guys too, D, uh, back in the day on the East Coast. I mean, I think it's the, what made this music at, when it finally got its chance on MTV so big is that every band, even before they were at that point, were playing shows as if they were arena shows, you know? Yeah. And so Wasp was building Pyro. You had um, Poison when they did shows, you know, they had they had the silly string, they had the balloons. If it was a Halloween show, they turned their their, you know, microphone stands into like which which uh, brooms and like everybody was going for it all the time. And, you know, building stage props, Warrant was doing it. Um, 
And I think that that was why when this music suddenly was exposed, people were ready to go. Mm. You know, it's like you, you weren't like, oh, how do I how do I project to 10,000 people? You've been doing it the whole time. And, and, I, and I'll jump in here and say, because I think this leads to an important thing. So, yeah, we were defining the rock scene in the Northeast with lighting trusses and huge PA systems and road crews and security and staging. And we had my, Suzette, who's been making costumes, my wife, since day one, she was on salary. She was just churning out. It was always new outfits, new looks. It, it was all about the show. And you talk about bands that are ready to go. But when MTV arrived, they needed bands that were ready to go. And that's mm -hmm. where metal got a shot. Because, you know, I say there's a reason why Joe Jackson disappeared when MTV arrived, because they found out why his shoes were on his album cover. Okay, nobody <laughs> wants to look at Joe Jackson or Supertramp. Video killed the radio stars for sure. But then it was like, where are the bands that are ready to present visually? Mm -hmm. And the mm -hmm. metal bands, the rock yeah. bands, we, we, this is what we did. It was our bread and butter. So it was like, we're ready to go, put us in. And there we were, you know, put it on a video and holy crap, look at these guys, it's a freak show. MTV loved it. Quiet Riot video, which was the one that did it. That's just a camera just trained on them on a soundstage. There's nothing else going on, but it's like, they've been doing this look at me thing for 10 years already in the clubs. And, you know, Rudy Sarzo talks about seeing him in the Starwood when they still had Randy in the band. And like, he felt like he was going to a show at Madison Square Garden. So this is what you guys have been doing every single night, sometimes three times a night for decade, for a decade. So all you need to do is put the camera on, turn the camera on and like, yeah, that's it. Yeah. Why do you think the scene in New York never really exploded the way it did in LA? You mean, now you say New York City or, or Long I'd say the city because you had Spread Eagle and Raging Slab and obviously you guys, you guys were at the forefront of all that, but the scene never really took off in New York the way it did in LA. I mean, after Twisted, honestly, I know exactly that's the exact answer. I got to answer everything, but I've studied and I have brain cells intact. Um, it's a suburban music. Mm. LA is a suburban city. It is a city. It's got, it, it is as much a city as New York is, but it's suburban sprawl. Everything's spread out. So you're in your cars, which metal really thrives on, but you had the record industry, the entertainment industry housed there. So you had the music scene that was going on Long Island, but we couldn't get the execs to cross the damn bridge or go through the tunnel to come to Long Island. They thought that was a, that was a, that was too far to go to yeah. check out a music scene. But here you were, they, these bands were playing in LA and you know, they're at these clubs and literally blocks away on the Sunset Strip is Atlantic Records. These guys were walking down the block to check out these phenomenons that were these bands that were making noise. So it was a, that unique nature, I think, of LA being a suburban city. That's what I call it. And also the strip, I mean, LA is massive, but the strip mm. is compact. You know, in, in on the East Coast, you know, you've got you've got Cinderella in Philly, you've got you've got uh the Skid Row guys, you know, it's another hour away, and then you've got like everything, even from Kicks, the more extreme, everyone. Yeah. From Lemoore to Studio once an hour and a half, you know, like it's it it wasn't this thing where you could literally just walk. I mean, that's where you were. If you were on the strip and you were handing out flyers for your gig, you were getting every person in that scene. It was a small area within a large metropolis, but you could really, if you were seen in this one area, then 
you had it, you know? And I think that that made a huge difference, the, the geographical centrality. Whereas I agree with Coast, that. You know, I agree with that. Definitely. And on that same strip, the record labels were there. Right. right. Atlantic yeah. Records was on Sunset Strip, yeah. blocks away from the whiskey, blocks, you know? Yeah. So it's right there. Definitely. I don't know. I'm not sure if you remember that club February, Steve, but not that glamorous. I think it was yeah, on that- Long Island. That was post Twisted Sister. We were <laughs> we were blessed that the drinking age got lowered after we left. Right after we left, it went from 18, it went up to 21, I should say. It got raised. And that just, you talk about video killing the radio star, the drinking age killed the bar scene, the club mm-hmm. scene. Because the clubs have been built up where they were holding thousands. And now with the drinking age of 21, and that's not really the prime, now we get that college age, it's no longer prime metal fans they're they're in the teens so when we were playing we're playing my wife was 15 when she snuck into a club and met me big mistake uh but um but you know and and that was like so we're playing 15 to 18 year old kids that's the core hard rock audience right there so february's is one of those little clubs that sort of struggled to stay alive after the drinking age went up did you ever contemplate moving the band to the west coast when everything really started exploding there you were always such an East Coast band that was never part of the discussion. No, we had already moved to England and we had broken out of there. So, you know, it was 81, 82 with the Under the Blade record and we're starting to make noise. So, and then I was, things are starting to happen over on the West Coast, but we're happening too. So we were, we're touring and now we head out there. But I remember driving through the night, coming through over the mountains into LA, Sunday morning, uh, drop driving and turn on the radio in KMET, which was K-Metal. Hmm. And it's like 6 a.m. and I hear the Trooper by Iron Maiden. <laughs> and I'm like, what the, where am I? Where is this magical place where the radio is playing metal and everybody's metal here, everybody's metal. And Twisted was just, I mean, we showed up and people went crazy because they had heard about us yeah. from the East Coast and from England, but that was our first time we got there. Definitely. Were you a fan of some of the bands that were coming out of L.A.? Obviously, Motley, Rat, and then later on, Guns. Guns, absolutely. But that was much later. Yeah. Um, uh, the bands that were coming out, you know, I was very, uh, you know, arms crossed, you know, uh, you know, we, you know, we're Twisted Sister, man. Uh, we, you know, we toured with Rat. I remember hearing Rat and going that round and round songs really good. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> so there was certain, but, but I, was, I had tended to be, unless they were like, the you know the hierarchy ACDC and bands like that and and Priest uh, they were sort of our peers so I was t- I was very hard pressed to to acknowledge them but YNT but you know YNT was a great band there were some really great bands coming out of the West Coast and Quiet Riot was great too I mean there's a reason why they lasted so long definitely definitely uh, Rich and Tom talk about the book a little bit Larry Mazur and Ray Brown were the co- Ray Brown was the costume designer that designed a lot of the outfits that a lot of the bands wore. And at a certain point you talk about a lot of the bands started looking like one another. So talk about how the fashion came into play back then and actually ultimately killed a lot of these bands careers because everyone looked the same after a while. Yeah. Well, Ray Brown is a guy who he did a lot of these bands, um, you know, Fleur Thea Myers in there as well. She did a lot of the artists. Uh, I think that, you know, you get this thing where, again, it all stems, it all goes back to the beginning where these guys are just trying to do it on their own without any label help, without any interest from the mainstream world. So 
part of that is looking as outrageous as you can just to get noticed and just to get over. And yeah, they're taking from the glam thing in the seventies. Um, I think on the West coast, there was a lot more kiss involved because they're not doing, I mean, Twisted Sister Diaz talked about how they were sort of linebackers and drag, but at least there was sort of the drag part of it. Like on the West coast, I don't think that I'm, I think that they weren't so much about the, the gender bending thing, but it really was, using glam as a way to look like superheroes, the way Kiss did a little bit more. Um, so, and at the beginning, you have all these bands that actually really look a lot different from each other. Like Quiet Riot doesn't look like Motley Crue, doesn't look like Twisted Sister, doesn't look like, you know, Wasp. Um, but you do get into this thing later on in the decade where people are taking their influence, not from the seventies or anything like that. They're taking an influence from the band that had a hit the year before and is actually still having big hits. Yeah. So you get dude. this really tight loop going on and that's, so it's not, I don't, I wouldn't put the blame actually on the designers, which I think a lot of the bands. No, no, but I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get in here because you, you, you had a really good point here. It, it wasn't just the costumes, but it was also the songwriting teams, the producers, mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. video directors. They became like a go-to group a very who did everything. Marty Colner, who did the Twisted videos, suddenly he was that guy who everybody was banging on his door. The costume designers, they, the producers, the, you know, you're getting into these. So when everybody starts drawing from that same well, right? It, you know, it just, it becomes, everything starts to replicate itself. And that's what ultimately killed it. So costuming was part of it, but there were all those elements where the record companies would just start, I used to call it the cookie cutter thing, you know, like, uh, okay, so this is how we make a hit. We get this, you know, this kind of band, with this kind of clothing and this kind of video and this kind of production and this kind of song and it's a hit and it was it worked for a while desmond childs was the guy he wrote a gazillion friggin songs for a gazillion artists towards the end of that hair metal era until he helped you know kill it yeah tom you get tom Werman, you got desmond child it's all it's all the same players for sure so at a certain point guns and roses comes along and later on obviously nirvana i mean what do you think it was that sort of changed music forever? I mean, a lot of people say Nirvana. Some people say it was Guns. To you guys, what was it that really, why did that music sort of come to an end, do you, do you think? I think aesthetically, actually just keeping with the clothes for a second, I think Guns N' Roses, and this is not an original thought, uh, their, their manager says it uh, in, in the book, but that Guns' look changed the way hard rock looked almost more than Nirvana's did. Like mm. when I think that when they came out and all the bands, you know, cause some bands like twisted. I, when you guys are wearing your, your full thing, you like rock it, you feel comfortable in it. But I think a lot of other bands, they were just doing it because that's what, like what you're saying, what you do. 100%. But, but then I think that when they saw like, wait, there's this band guns and roses and we can wear t-shirts and jeans and cowboy boots and we're cool. I think that a lot of people were like maybe relieved or like, I, but when you see when Guns comes out, Cinderella starts looking different. Every single band. Well, look at you see Mark Weiss's yeah. book, um, Decade of Rocked, and he's got the original photo session for Skid Row. And they are a full blown hair metal band, makeup, costumes, everything. And then someone, I think it was maybe Bon Jovi, flicks this, literally says, throwing that out that you're going by the Guns N' Roses look and they come out completely downplaying with the cut off flannel shirt and all that stuff like that. So yeah, there was a, there was a switch thrown there, but I personally feel like, first of all, we talked about that everything became cookie cutter. I feel it was unplugged. Mm -hmm. I feel that when they took away the electric guitars 
And they said, well, well, why? It sort of discredited what we did. I just felt that they were saying, you're not credible unless you're able to pick up an acoustic guitar and sing your song. And I just felt like, well, when we don't have electric guitars anymore and we don't have the costumes anymore and we're not rocking and we're not being outrageous anymore, what's left? Right. What's so left? There was, never, there was never a twisted unplugged session that was being planned. <laughs> no, man. And you had to see what they went through to get me to do the piano vocal version of We're Not Gonna Take It on one of my records. I mean, uh, to slow it down and do it, it was children's cancer. All right, so I said, all right, of a children's cancer, I will do a piano vocal version. And it's very powerful and, and, it's a, and it, was, it was worth it. But yeah, it took cancer to get me to unplug. Amazing. Well, Dee, I know you have to run soon. I just want to talk about any projects you have coming up. Uh, obviously you're hosting Breaking the Band on Reels, right? Which is great, great show. Yes. There was a Christmas record that came out last year too. So let's talk about anything else you have coming up because I know you're on a tight schedule here. Yeah, I'm that, I'm that guy. I'm the one who makes everybody else look like they're standing still. And it's not that I want to embarrass people. I'm just terrified of having the bottom fall out again. I lost everything by the 90s and it, it would shook me to the core. So people say, wow, you do so many things. You do voiceover, you do acting, you do writing, you, you know, you're I'm gonna be directing my first movie this year. Uh, you're involved with, uh, you know, Rock Me Amadeus, which is this classic meets rock mashup. You're involved with Kings of Chaos. I've, I've got another solo record called Leave a Scar coming out July 30th, which is very metallic, very contemporary. I've, I've moved them much more. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a fan of contemporary metal. So my sound is much more contemporary now. And I said, what, how do you, what moves you? I said, 10% inspiration, 90% desperation. And that is the truth. <laughs> I'm terrified of losing it all again. Like it happened. And I, I just, when, when, when the hair metal scene closed up and the band broke up, I just, was not prepared. I thought th I thought this was the finish line. I didn't know I had to, and I had three kids. I didn't know I had to like another 50 years to live and, <laughs> and the money ran out, you know? So I just started doing anything and everything. And so a lot of things I do like voiceover work and like I said, and acting, I just finished my first novel and, uh, and uh, directing a movie. All this stuff is just extension of what else can I do that I, that I enjoy, that I'm passionate about, but to make sure that I'm never at that point in my life again where I'm broke. Because I don't was, think that's ever gonna happen. Not now, no, 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 I've got, but still, but I can't get that feeling. Yeah. That is, it's that feeling out of my brain. Like I let up, the, take your foot off the gas because you're cool now. You're cool, you got plenty of money and you're happy and you're healthy. So take it easy. And every time I tell Suzanne I'm retiring, she just laughs. <laughs>, laughs and laughs and laughs. My management says, you know, we don't take you seriously. Every year I say, that's it, last record. I'm not doing any more live shows. I'm done. They say, okay, Dane. But I, I did hear you and JJ talk about the fact that maybe there would be some more Twisted shows in the future. Do you think that could happen? Well, uh, we've, we've been on the same page with this. I would absolutely reunite with the guys for a song or two for a charity or for a moment. Fallon called up and said, hey, he's a big Twisted fan. Hey, would you guys, you know, come on the show and do uh, one of your Christmas songs or whatever? I would love to. Love to. Go out and do a 90 or a two hour set um, as Twisted Sister again. I, I don't see that happening. Definitely. I don't see that happening. I, and I'm having pretty, getting pretty great response. I mean, I broke into the top 20 with my last album, For the Love of Metal, which shocked the hell out of Taylor Swift and Kanye. <laughs> like, What's that old white guy doing up here? I'm like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what happened, but people like the new record. So I, it took a, quite a bit to find sort of like my place in the community. So I'm sort of staying the course now. 
Definitely. Well, we really appreciate you coming on. It means the world and definitely made this a more exciting conversation to have you here. We'll be talking. You guys would have been fine without me. You would have been fine without me. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you so much for participating in the book too. Like having your voice in there was, was just so great and it is truly appreciated. So I know. So I thank you. Welcome. And somebody said that as a result of not being a participant in the scene, uh, and not being high, uh, I was a great observer of what was happening. Like I was I part of it, mm-hmm. yet I still was outside in a way, watching and seeing and and remembering uh, probably many things that they don't want me to remember. So uh, anyway, great talking to you guys. Thank you. Uh, Thank you, Jay. I, I got to go boil some skulls. Just got to get <laughs> the flesh it. off them. All right, take care, guys. Thanks, bye. So Tom and Rich, let's get into a little bit more. We That was great, right? I mean, it's such a great yeah. perspective to have Dee on the show. There's so many great moments in the book. And and Rich, me and Tom were talking before you uh, got on the call here. So, you know, obviously my connection to the scene is played with the singer of LA Guns. At some point, Faster needed a new drummer. I rehearsed with them. I played with Wes Arkeen. I have a million connections to this. And this is a life that I lived for so many years. So it's the book is so near and dear to me that I really felt like I re- was reliving my youth when I read the book. And it's a great book. And congratulations on being a New York Times bestseller. If you guys haven't seen it, here's the book again. So talk to me about some of your favorite moments in the book. There's a great story about Warrant and Prince. There's a great story about uh, Jack Russell shooting his housekeeper. There's amazing, great moments in the book. Talk to me about some of those great moments. Well, the two that you just brought up are great moments. I mean, the, let me say that the Jack Russell moment is, is probably one of the standout moments in the book. It's hard to characterize it as a great moment because someone gets shot. Um, but I need more I think, funny moments, I guess, yeah. or <laughs> strange moments. Well, I mean, what makes it compelling, and it's actually, it's the one moment in the book where we kind of just let somebody go for as long as they need to go. And like yeah. that, that story goes on for a few pages and it's just Jack sort of monologuing. It's a really intense story. And when he told it, it was actually very intense. Like, I think he actually got a little bit choked up telling it um, and sort of, and he made a point to say, I'm not telling the story to glorify it and to sound like a badass or whatever, but he's like, this was a terrible moment. And in a nutshell, he, you know, is high on PCP, I think. And he used to rob other drug dealers around the area in Southern California. Um, And this is right when Great White is starting. I think this is still when they're Dante Fox. And he basically blacks out during this robbery and he winds up shooting the maid at this person's home. Um, The gun goes off accidentally. It hits her like she's wearing some sort of religious, you know, necklace or something. It hits that actually and winds up he says saves her life and actually saves his as well um, because he now has not murdered someone, but he blacks out. He wakes up. There's a SWAT team there. He goes to, you know, he's in like juvenile detention. It's originally supposed to be like eight years. It winds up being much less, um, but he tells the story in great detail. And then he gets out and like a couple of days later, he's like rocking the whiskey or the troubadour or something with, with great white. Um, and he's kind of on his way, but it's like, you know, it's it's a really extreme example of what a lot of these bands go through in the early days before they make it. Um, you know, he's the only one that goes through that in particular, but they all have these really colorful backstories before they start on this journey that we all know them for. Yeah, I was going to say, do you think there's a tendency to sort of, uh, I would say, downplay 
some of the stories that were told you because we live in such a PC era right now, right? I mean, I, w I wouldn't say that maybe, you know, 15 years ago, but now I feel like maybe people had a tendency to downplay some of the debauchery that was going on back then. Did you feel that way as people that were interviewing, you know, as the authors of this book? I think um, people did are, are a little bit wary of discuss, discussing that stuff. I think they're also, you know, 30 years down the road from it. Um, but also, and this is one of the things and why we made sure to interview not just musicians, but managers and people from labels and, and mm -hmm. club bookers. For the guys in the bands, I don't think it's what was most memorable. It was just Tuesday. Yeah. Right. You know what I mean? Like, like, so, so, so. I was know, there for sure. I agree. <laughs> and, you know, we have this one um, thing in the book where the guys uh, from Electra Records go visit Motley Crue on the road. And, and it's Bob Krasnow, right? And, and some other guy. And from, Mike Bone, yeah. Who tells and Mike, Mike Bone from Electra. They go see uh, Motley Crue play somewhere in, in, in the Midwest. And they go backstage and there is a room with a sign on it that says dog pound. And when you open it, I'm not, I'm just telling this is again, not glorifying, but this is what, I, and there women, there's a room full of women that um, the roadies have selected, you know, for the band in there. And Nikki six, I think goes and picks one girl and takes her in the bathroom and stuff is happening like right in plain view. And like, again, for Mike Bone and for this other guy from Electra, this is the most bizarre unchained thing they've ever seen. And so them telling the story gives you the perspective of like a civilian, how, how we would experience this. Maybe not right, you right. because you were out on the strip, but for like <laughs> yeah. me or Rich, like yeah. that, but like, does Nikki Six remember that night? No, you know. So I think a lot of it was people. You know, like if you ask a guy, like, was there a lot of drugs and girls? They're like, oh, totally. Yeah. But like a specific memory, um, and then also, you know, I thought we were, and we were also careful not to. We were. I mean, all me and Rich were also aware. Like, we wanted to make a book that was sort of that could exist in 2021 you know what i mean so it had to not celebrate like really like sort of like uh things the decadence that, yeah the decadence yeah. not even the decadence is okay but like you know when it gets into like like anything really misogynistic, misogynistic right? something, of course, then, of then you gotta like you know but i think you know most of the people involved in the book you know have also evolved i really do believe that yeah. um Interesting enough, a lot of the executives seemed to take part in a lot of that stuff. When I read the book, too, it wasn't just the bands. It was yeah. also some of the record company guys and the managers. You know, you have people that I know personally. They're like, yeah, I was blacked out for six months straight on Coke. It's like, really? Like, that could never happen now. Yeah, I think it was just sort of it was obviously celebrated in a different way back then and sort of part of the whole deal. Like you really were presenting this lifestyle. Um, yeah. certainly to the public, but also I think if you weren't presenting it just to your peers and just in the sort of bubble you were in, like you kind of were on the outs, um, unless you were a guy like D 
who his band wasn't really doing that either. They came a little bit from outside of that scene. And he was also a guy who was just super in control. Like you weren't going to mess with him, but most guys didn't have that sort of presence. And so you, I mean, a lot of people were doing it because they wanted to indulge and it was fun, but probably some people that didn't even want to, you just fall in line. I think D and Mark Mendoza, like six, four and with heels, probably six, eight. So I don't think anybody was messing with either one of them. Yeah, like you do what they do. <laughs> but interesting enough, you know, some of these bands have gone on to stand the test of time. You still have these, you know, Guns was what, like a $500 million touring business this last tour. Motley is still playing stadiums, right? Some of the bands really made it and carried through and some didn't. And when you listen to a lot of this music and you go back and listen to it, are there certain bands that don't stand the test of time to and certain bands that do? Because... I do it constantly and some of it I'm like, ooh, it doesn't really hold up. And some of it does to me. So which are the bands for you guys that really hold up still? I can always put on a kicks record. Same. Like, 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 you know what I mean? You put like I put on Blow My Fuse and Midnight Dynamite regularly for mm. my enjoyment. Yeah. You know, um by the so way, they're still great live where a lot of bands are amazing. Aren't. Yeah, yeah, they're still great. So but um, and I'll go even deeper. I'll go. There's bands like Vane, you know, that I love. And then there's a band I used to play with a lot called Junkyard. Still love those records because it's got this southern rock vibe. But there's also quite a lot of those bands. I, dare I say, I don't know who it is, Britney Fox or Dante Fox. I don't know, right? There's a lot of those bands we can listen to them now. Maybe they don't quite stand up musically to some other things. Would you agree? I think so. I mean, I think that, and look, I mean, it's whatever anybody's particular taste is, but. Yeah, I would say probably not as many people are listening to Britney Fox nowadays um, as okay. our list might still listen to a band like Kicks or like the first Skid Row record, which just still sounds fucking awesome. You know, like it's just undeniable. Like it's great songwriting. Like the guys play great. Sebastian is great. So like you can't, the stuff that's really good is still, is always really good, I think. Yeah. Well, no it comes down to the songwriting, I think. It really does. And were there any stories in the book that really, really surprised you? I do love, I mentioned it before, but the Warrant Prince story, because that was something to me that I was like, I would never put the two and two of those in the same sentence, you know? I, I mean, that's a really one of the weirder ones. Like, there's all these weird things that happen with Warrant, but like that, you know, uh, Jerry Dixon, the, the bass player of Warrant, is, a, is and particularly was probably in 1986 or seven, a extremely good looking man. And um, he has the Matt Dillon of the rock world. Yes. Mm -hmm. And, and he like had been in a picture in, I think BAM mag, like a Capitol records trade ad in BAM magazine, like um, where he was like leaning up against the lamppost and like, he was like giving the, the camera, the finger. And it was like a, a Capitol records ad for all their hard rock bands. And a woman who worked for Prince saw the ad and she also produced a, uh, latin soap operas and she didn't even have any interest in jerry as a musician her initial thing is like i want him for my soap he's gonna be a soap star and and, and uh jerry to his credit is like no you know i'm not really interested in that but i do have a band like you should come check out my band and so this woman also works with prince managed to get prince to fund their demo and it's actually the demo that ends up getting them signed to Columbia Records. They do a whole demo on Prince's dime. Um, things seem to be proceeding. And then 
Prince receives a videotape of them playing, I think, at the country club. And he's watching them and he's like, these guys can't dance. I can't do anything with them. And that's literally where it stops. Like he wanted the full package. But like it's it's so weird because it also indicates that like at that time, which is probably 86, 87, like everybody wanted in to this world. You know what I mean? Like like Prince is like, oh, like I I would like to produce one of these LA glam bands you know what i mean yeah. like, i think everyone was trying to like like somehow get connected with this you know and i'll let rich tell it but it also turns out that you know print that uh warrant completely in a weird way influenced michael jackson i was gonna bring that up next you know? yeah yeah and that's an interesting story because it's like again why wouldn't you know these guys who like we were talking about with d who are so image you know, focused and everything like it should bleed over into the, say the pop world. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this case, it's what happened. And the, the story itself is actually much longer than what appears in the book, but this um, designer, his name's Al Bain and just randomly also, he had helped years earlier Wasp create their stage show, but now he's a leather designer. He's been making clothes for Warrant. In a nutshell, he has his own little shop. He goes there one day all the merch is gone. It's all been bought out. And I think what he thinks happened at first is he got shut down somehow. And he's like freaking out. Long story short, then he finds out someone actually paid for all this stuff. He is told to go meet somebody at a soundstage in Universal City. He gets a limo sent to drive him over there. He has no idea who it is. He goes to the soundstage, still has no idea who it is. Gets brought to a corner of the soundstage. Michael Jackson comes out. He had been there rehearsing. And he basically tells Al Bain that he likes this outfit that Janie Lane wears, which is black, has the buckles all over it. Um, essentially, this is, becomes the, the Michael Jackson bad outfit. It's what he's wearing on the cover of the bad album. But he basically tells them he wants, he tells Al Bain he wants this look. He then pulls, while he's telling this, he pulls a crumpled up flyer for a warrant gig out of his pocket, which is mind blowing because it means like Michael Jackson, A, really knows who Warren is. And B, if you read the book, Warren have the most insane flyers of any band on the strip at that time. It's like all, it's like sex police and like all this ridiculous stuff, which is all even a test to. So Michael Jackson potentially pulls out like a sex police flyer. He's like, I want this, Um, you know, and what winds up happening is he gets it. And I think the guys in Warren actually feel a little bit you know, ticked off about it because actually Bad comes out before Warren's still a club band and Bad comes out before Warren comes out, you know, with Dirty Rotten, Filthy Stinging Rich. So Michael is sort of the one that presents this look to the world and he does it in a very, you know, they talk, the Warren guys talk about the fact in the book, like theirs is put together. It's all like belt buckles and all this stuff. Michael does it in a way where it's like crystals and, you know, all these gems. So he does the Michael Jackson version of it, but he comes out with it before Warren does. Um, But it just shows this weird sort of bleed between these two worlds that you think would have nothing in common. And yet, you know, here we are. Definitely. Now, there's incredible stories in the book. It's interesting, though, you talk a lot about sort of the death of, you know, 80s hard rock and obviously Nirvana. We can't talk about this conversation without having Nirvana play into this somehow. So but it is interesting when I listen back on some of those records and the book did make me go back and review some of these records from like early 90s. 
I will say I, I, there wasn't a lot of incredible records for me coming out from these artists in the early 90s. Unless I'm missing something, I don't think the quality of the songwriting was as great as it was in the mid to late 80s. Do you guys agree with that at all? I think totally. I mean, when you make your list of like the great records of the era, you know, um, a lot of it is centered around like 86 to 89. I, I, I often, you know, look, if, if grunge, quote unquote, and it sort of didn't, but take it, took, took out glam metal, it, it didn't take out an entity at, that was at full strength. Mm. You know what I mean? Like yeah. this was already like a tired and bloated genre that had been going on for a decade, which is longer than most of these genres do. And like we were discussing with D, you had bands now, like I just did a playlist for something. And my first song is uh, Toast of the Town by Motley Crue, the, the single. The last song is the cover of it by Pretty Boy Floyd. You know, and that shows like you you went from bands influenced by Zeppelin and Van Halen and blah, 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 to bands that are obsessed with Motley Crue yeah. being the and so it had started to sort of you know pop elite itself it started to consume itself so I think it was probably ready to go I don't think that it was like at this point of strength like maybe you know and. Also, and this is something that we we made sure to talk to, like Kim Thale and, and Jerry Cantrell. And, Can, you know, Jerry Cantrell was a bandmate with a member of Pretty Boy Floyd. Gr those bands, the quote unquote grunge bands, were not out to kill hair metal. Like, and they're actually very emphatic about that. Like, they're like, we don't want to be remembered as bands that destroyed something else, you know? Well, interesting enough, Alice in Chains, when they first came out, were glam. I saw them open for Extreme, and Jerry Cantrell was at, at the Cat Club in New York City, and Jerry Cantrell was most definitely wearing acid wash jeans and cowboy boots. You no know, one so, talks about that gig, though. You don't really hear about that gig. But like, there was this coexistence, too, yeah. you know? Like, they did, the, you know, uh, Skid Row tried to get Nirvana to go on tour. Uh, Axl Rose loved um I was a Nirvana fan. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So there was a, yeah. I don't think it was clear that it had to be either or at the beginning, mm -hmm. you know, but it, it did end up being that way. And, and, you know, and I think that's down to, I partially that I think Kurt Cobain himself personally did totally dislike this music. That, that like is this. correct for sure. And um, so it's, it's funny because because the book has five, the book is 522 pages. So I'm assuming there's a lot that you guys had to leave on the cutting room floor. Is there any chapters or any bands that you left out that in hindsight, you're like, wow, I really wish I could be included, you know, extreme or, as I said, enough's enough or whoever it may be in the book. Yeah, I, well, I think those are two bands right there. Um, and Tom had talked about earlier how it just some of it just came down to what is also going to help forward the whole story. Um, the Nuff's Nuff story is a great story, uh, but it's just sort of outside the realm of it, just like Dangerous Toys. I mean, we talked to the guys in like Tora Tora, which is actually a really super interesting story, but it's like they're developing their thing down in like Tennessee. Yeah. And it's so just their thing. It doesn't really lead anywhere. Say, and ex even a band like Extreme who are in there um, and Nuno comes in a lot at the end, especially when we're talking about the Shredders and the big power ballads. 
But to tell their whole story, like it's so far at the end of the whole thing that it really would have just been again, like, yeah, we're already at 500 pages. Like, are we going to do 800 pages? I think Tom and I might've been okay with that. I don't know that our publisher would have felt the same way. So we had to make some of those tough choices, but that was the main thing. It was like, on one level, it's like, is this story worthy? But then on top of that, the story has to also push forward. It has to tell a larger story um, and also help to move the whole story of the scene forward. If it couldn't do those two things, it probably wasn't going to take up a lot of space in the book. So there won't be a second edition. There could be. <laughs> but you know, I now I'm wishing, like I was listening to D, I was like, oh my God, we should have had a chapter on Y and T. Right. Sure. <laughs> like he's yeah. talking, I'm like, oh no. Yeah. We, By the way, we, I thought the same but, thing. Um, but I was like, whoa, wait, Y and T. Um, there, you know, yeah, a lot of good stuff got left. Like I did a great interview with uh, not Bobby Rock uh, of Nelson and, and Madame X because he's in the book and he's an amazing interview mm -hmm. but bob rock the producer and just because we didn't go that deeply into bon jovi and we didn't go end up going that deeply into um dr feelgood like that interview didn't make it but you have to understand that when we handed in this book we were like 35 or 40 percent over the contracted length mm. so we handed it in and and like all thanks goes to our, our editor mark resnick because we like hit send and then like me and rich were basically just sitting there like oh fuck what if they make us cut a third of the book what if they make us <laughs> like like we were terrified because yeah. we had no idea how we were going to do that if they made us do it like I, maybe we would just walked away from the whole thing and, <laughs> but like so even even at, as it was we went we went long but you know yeah there is a lot of good stuff on on, on the cutting room floor I was going to say there could be a second book about all the minor players, right? The Tora Toras, the Black Cherries, the Saigon Saloons, the Rattlesnake Shakes. There's all these secondary, third tier, fourth tier bands, but I'm sure that'll maybe that'll happen one day. Maybe it won't. <laughs> Either way, congratulations. New York Times bestseller, guys. Incredible, right? So yeah. the book came out March 16th. Make sure everyone picks up a copy of this. Nothing but a good time. Rich and Tom, pleasure to have you. I'm Thanks happy that we, we got D to chime in. It yeah. was awesome. And uh, yeah, we'll have to have, a, I'm in New York a lot. So we'll grab Robbie and we'll have a drink together. Let's do awesome. it. Awesome. Awesome, guys. You, Thanks again. See you later. Thanks. Bye. See you soon. Bye. Bye. You're listening to Lips LA with Scott Lips. So there you have it, guys. D. Snyder from Twisted Sister, Tom Major, Richard Beanstock. Nothing but a good time. The uncensored history of the 80s hard rock explosion. That conversation from me was what I lived. That was my life. So that was a very interesting conversation, having lived through that time period, been there, done that. And honestly, I feel like I lived a thousand lives during that time period. So super fascinating. D. Snyder is a polarizing individual and uh, almost a little bit intimidating, but uh, boy, he's such a presence. So thanks for tuning in, guys. I appreciate it. If you like the show, as always, please make sure to rate and review the show. Five stars on iTunes would be great. Show is free. It's available every Tuesday, more or less. We have some great guests coming up and speak to you guys soon. Hey, howdy do, y'all? I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. 
The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find The Ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.